so much infrastructure in Ukraine and it's going to have to pay for it. And how much is temporary? You know, I would say we may find that energy cutbacks are temporary simply because the West is such a voracious appetite for energy, but we'll see. This is episode number 138 with James Sandy Winnefeld. On this episode of Transform Talks, I'm joined by James Sandy Winnefeld, a retired United States Navy Admiral who served as the ninth Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff of the United States. Sandy served in the US Navy for 43 years. He graduated from Georgia Tech in 1978 with honors in aerospace engineering. He served as an instructor at the Navy Fighters Weapons School, best known as Top Gun, and has served in several tours abroad, including the Gulf War, the war in Afghanistan, and the Iraq War. Sandy and I dove right into the details of the current situation in Ukraine and Putin's goals in the region. We briefly give context to this war by discussing what led up to this point and how Russia is backing itself into a corner and what that could mean for all of us. Sandy shares the effects that rippled across supply chains in Europe and the globe. He also gives his take on pillars of successful leadership and how these qualities can stand out in times of crisis. We also spent time discussing other major concerns resonating from the war in Ukraine. Everything from cyber attacks and cyber defense to looming apprehension over China and Taiwan. Sandy also gives insight into staying positive and being an effective leader in a volatile world. Now, this is an important podcast filled with tips, advice, and wisdom from a man with a vast amount of experience in leadership during times of absolute crisis. Let's dive in. Hello, Sandy. Thanks for being here. Thanks for coming to Transform Talks. Hello, Maria. It's such a pleasure to be with you today. So why don't we jump straight into the deep end? Let's jump straight in. What is going on in Ukraine? It's obviously a big gut-wrenching thing that's happened that's having impacts across the globe. And I, I think it's uh, important to start with why on earth did Vladimir Putin do this? What were his goals in invading Ukraine? And there are five or six of them. He wants to assuage his deep resentment over the collapse of the Soviet Union and restore what he thinks is Russia's rightful place at the head of Slavic civilization. He wants to address his own paranoia about having a free and democratic Ukraine on his border, which could threaten his own autocratic regime. Uh, he's always wanted to weaken and divide NATO. He has an itch to formalize his annexation of and secure a land corridor to Crimea, which he stole in 2014, and secure the independence of Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine. Maybe more than anything else, he wants to secure his own legacy as a great Russian historical leader. And then the sort of scary thought is if he wins this thing and resets himself, potentially cast his ambition to other former Soviet states, including some that are in NATO. Well, that Yeah. And I, I tell you that the Russian invasion, unlike what Putin's cause, calling it, is not a special military operation. It really is an unprovoked, highly scripted war of aggression, which is actually a war crime with precedent going all the way back to the Nuremberg trials in the wake of World War II. And then subordinate to that, the way the invasion is being pursued is also a war crime. And that's important, as we might talk about later. Now, yeah, we've uh, all Putin's, seen the pictures. We've all seen the pictures, oh, right? Yeah, deliberately attacking civilian areas that have no relationship whatsoever uh, to the military. So that's a war crime. Now, their timeline is well behind what Putin and his generals really hoped to accomplish. They made some really bad assumptions about what was going to happen there. They thought it was going to be easy, and it's turned out to be a military embarrassment. But the combination of a lack of skill on the part of Russians and a lack of will on the part of Russians, on the part of his own forces, and strong will on the part of the Ukrainians, along with a few key weapons, including stingers, javelins, and armed Turkish drones, and that sort of thing, have had an enormous impact on the Russian campaign. 
So their only recourse is to resort to their standard way of war, which is siege tactics, leveling cities, destroy the place, shatter the morale of the civilian population, and then run it over. And as I said before, those are war crimes. But once the Russian army actually gets to Kiev, it's going to get especially hard. Uh, I was just going to ask you, I was just going to say, because... I think in our day and age, you're clearly more of an expert at this, but where we're coming from, our generations in the West have not seen this kind of war, have we? We haven't been touched by this sort of thing. So there's almost like two schools of thought, people that are b- believing this is a bit of an incursion or it's some, something that's happening far away from me and the impact is not necessarily going to be felt. And then there are those people that are students of history, of economics, geopolitics that understand how serious this is. So before we get into the ramifications for business and supply chain, how serious is this really? It's extremely serious. And historians uh, are looking at, at this through a long lens. And there are what I would call a series of long wave geopolitical cycles. Let's say starting with the 30 years war in Europe, which was perhaps the bloodiest war in human history per capita. That ended, statesmen put into place the uh, Peace of Westphalia that lasted for about 150 years until people started to forget the bloody costs of war and nationalism came in and all that. And you had an autocrat like Napoleon who came in and and started the Napoleonic Wars. Those ended, they were terribly bloody, they ended. You had the Concert of Europe that was put into place by statesmen, which lasted about 100 years before the First and Second World War that were also caused by desperate autocrats, Hitler and, and the like. And then afterwards, statesmen put into place yet another thing we call the international system right now, or the global operating system, that has lasted only about 75 or 80 years right now. And it's smart to ask whether this is the end of another geopolitical cycle. And those things tend to end in a very bloody way. We can only hope that we can contain this thing and get it back in its box. But I don't have a lot of optimism about that right now. Mm-hmm. So what's at stake is quite significant. This is not some far off skirmish. Yeah, it's not. And uh, it's particularly uh, poignant for Europeans. The Europeans who tended to be a little mercantilist about what Russia was doing, they looked the other way after Russia invaded Georgia, and then after Russia invaded Crimea, and they were murdering their own dissidents and that sort of thing. But this has caused a, a very large psychological shift for Europe. They have reacted more strongly than anybody expected. The shock is on their front doorstep as a stark reminder of the harm that powerful autocrats can and usually do. Even the Swedes and the Finns are polling in favor of joining NATO. Uh, It really has caused something to snap, which implies there's no going back if once this crisis is over. Russia has really put themselves uh, in a bad place. So they can only go forward. That's a good question of how is this going to end? It's a a very difficult question. There's no golden off-ramp for Putin on the horizon and very little hope for successful negotiations. We can keep our fingers crossed on that. And in the meantime, a powerful autocrat has become cornered by his own military failures and a powerful and growing group of sanctions and world opinion. And he knows his survival is at stake. So he's really, as you heard in the media, pulling out the stops on controlling information inside Russia. It really is extraordinary. Think Stalin and Khrushchev. And, but if and when the Russian people start to sense what's happening to their brother and sister Ukrainians, including Russian war crimes, how many Russian soldiers are actually being lost and the humiliation of the Russian military and the economic impact on them, which will take a little while, Putin may be in real trouble. Uh, so he could end up acting out and escalating this in order to try to bring it to a conclusion on his terms. 
Let's bring this back now to the wider business world. What are the implications for business right now as you see them and what could they be? I think the way it's going, it's likely that sanctions and the sort of essential disconnection of the Russian economy from the Western world is going to last a long time. Uh, and it's not just nationally imposed sanctions. It's this new thing we in business call ESG. Remember what I said about war crimes. Companies don't want to be associated with Russia at the moment, and who knows how long that's going to last. But to get back in, Russia is going to have to pay some serious reparations and that sort of thing. And in the meantime, there is a huge impact on the, on the economics of, this, of the globe. For one thing, Russia and Ukraine together export more than a quarter of the world's supply of wheat. Now that's going to have real impacts in several areas. Food security is going to be affected in key areas like the Middle East and high which prices set for off, food. Which, which, which could set off its own series of events. Exactly. High prices in those areas or shortages have historically caused a lot of instability. And then, of course, energy exports are going to be affected even more, especially if they're substantially cut off. So there's going to have to be a big adjustment on the part of other energy producers and consumers, including the businesses that are in this network and including their transportation costs. And then, of course, we all know the, the host of commodities that are going to be affected none of which Russia has a monopoly on, but they do have an awful lot of production of copper, nickel, aluminum, titanium, palladium, neon, graphite, platinum. Uh, so I don't need to tell you what that means for supply chains. Mm. It really depends on the industry. And a lot of it is second order effects. A nickel shortage causes a steel shortage and a price increase, and perhaps even rationing. That could impact manufacturers like the company I'm on a board on that makes uh, laundry equipment. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this could be long lasting until alternative sources uh, come into play. We're already seeing scarcity of resources anyway in, in this world <clears throat> because of environmental issues and climate change issues. So to add war to that, there's, it's just going to complicate things a lot more. Um, and, then, and then on top of that, Maria, th there's uh, other looming supply chain challenges that are rearing their ugly heads too. We're watching COVID resurge in China. We've seen just in the last day its impact on Apple's facilities in Shenzhen. And it's, there are signs that COVID is starting to surge again in Europe, which means it's probably headed here again. It's something we have to be you know, prepared for. And it's not a new strain. It's just you can get COVID twice. Even if you've been vaccinated, you may not die, but uh, you could get it twice. So that is yet another layer on this complexity that we're talking about. We're dealing with multiple crises at, at one time. This isn't a regional issue, and this is a global-wide issue. Can, now let's bring it to the supply chain. So clearly, supply chain leaders have have had to deal with crisis after crisis, whether it was COVID, whether it's environmental impact, ships stuck in canals, there's been crisis on top of crisis. I want to talk to you about supply chain, but not just, I brought you here because of your great experience in dealing with, in, the, in a battle, in battle, in moments of battle, in moments of crisis, in moments of real tight situations, I, I, I think I told you when I was speaking to you beforehand, I was speaking to some of our uh, members and they were exhausted and only into week two of, the, of this war. And they're exhausted because they're having to do jobs that they've never done before. So I want to talk to you about supply chain in all aspects, the implication for the wider supply chain, the implication for leaders in terms of managing under crisis. And what does this mean for the long term for supply chain directors? Sure. So I think you've got two really important questions in there, Maria. One is about leadership 
and the other is about the supply chain itself. So why don't we start with, with leadership? I've always believed that there are five key pillars in being a good leader. One is leading yourself, another is leading people, another is leading organizations, another is leading execution, and then the last one is leading change. Trying to lead through a crisis kind of lives in all five of those, those pillars. And one of the first things you have to do as a leader is just stay calm. Because a lot of us as leaders forget the fact that the entire organization is watching us very closely. It's like your kids watch you very closely. And if you panic, they're going to panic. So managing your brain, staying calm in this crisis and managing your own personal stress is absolutely vital in terms of leading an organization. And then it's a matter of calmly and coolly looking at the problem, focusing on the right things, putting the right people on the various issues that you've got to work with and keeping a constant battle rhythm, as it were, of staying updated and jumping on problems as they arise. But there's an awful lot in there where leaders are essentially hired, I think, for two principal reasons. One, or you know, maybe three. One is to you know, assemble a really good team. Another is to put a great vision in place, a great culture in place for the, the company or, or organization that they're leading. And then the third thing is actually leading through a crisis. You as the leader know more about what's going on than anybody else in, in your organization in most cases. And it's now your time to shine in a very calm way. So that's about leading through crisis. I think in particular on the supply chain, and so let's focus on you know, what's happening you know, based on what is occurring in Russia. I think there are near-term things you need to do and mid-term things you need to do. The near-term thing is make sure your people are safe. If you have people in Ukraine, for example, or even in Russia, your very first priority to make, should be to make sure your people are safe. And no business leader I've ever talked to doesn't get that. So that's a given. Another is, and a whole list of things, think about trying to lock in some transportation prices, hedging or whatever you have to do, because those are going to go up. They're going to continue to go up because of energy prices going up and potentially the additional complication of more COVID. Uh, another, very self-evident, you have to live off what you have in terms of inventory. But I would consider taking the decision now to build inventory beyond just in time. Some people would call this hoarding. <laughs> but you may, you may have to scramble to do it. But I think the world of just-in-time supply is behind us. The costs associated with building inventory and maintaining that inventory are probably worth it in such a turbulent time. I'd also say try to clearly identify the areas where you're most at risk. Spend the most time on the most important things, for example. And that's particularly true for manufacturers who reply, rely on parts that are supplied by other tiers. You need to understand how dependent your tier two, three, and four suppliers are on that sort of supply chain. And how are they doing? Trying to get more visibility into what your tiered suppliers are going through. That, that goes hand in hand with risk assessment, doesn't it? Because it understanding sure your second, third, and fourth tier supply chain levels will help you assess what kind of risk or exposure you have. For, exactly. Another thing that I've heard from manufacturers I think is important is to think about your increased cost as it relates to your pricing before the bad thing happens, not while it's happening, because you're probably going to be chasing the, the pricing if you do that. And, and I don't want to, anybody contributing opportunistically to inflation, but I also wouldn't want your margins buried by an unexpected cost increase or, or maybe one that you saw coming, but you didn't do anything about. Another thing uh, is to understand any force majeure 
uh, provisions that are in your supply chain contracts, which is cover unforeseeable circumstances like war that prevent somebody from actually fulfilling a contract. You can't just rely on the paper. You've got to understand that there may be a provision in there that gives your suppliers an out. It goes without saying that you want to check your cybersecurity and do whatever you can to get reassurance on that from your tiers of supply. It's been a bit of a surprise so far that Russia has not lashed out in the cyber offensive cyber world. But that could change the more desperate Putin gets, right? Yeah. And he's going to want to do something proportional, right? If we're affecting his economy, he wants to affect ours. And the most, the, the quickest and uh, you know, most unattributable way to do it is to try to do some kind of cyber attack. So you don't have to you know, outrun the bear. You just got to run faster than the other guy. That's what I've always said in cyber. Make sure you're a hard target so that the, he moves on to somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not to be underestimated. The need, you know, if you're, if you're not yelling uh, at the top of your lungs to your uh, employees and your supply chain that cybersecurity is important, you're not you're just not saying it enough. Yeah. And then I think in the mid and long term, it's memorializing your near term move away from just in time supply. I'd trade some margin, frankly, for the safety of some extra stocks in the long term. The world is just too unsettled right now. And then in filling those stocks, you obviously want to diversify your supply chain, both in number of suppliers and in the location of your suppliers. That could, and that could have some offsetting beneficial and harmful effects on cost. Having more suppliers can help you drive down your cost, but doing it in more than one location, some of those locations cost a little bit more than others. Russia has been a great piece of the supply chain, not only because of their abundance of supply, you know, of raw materials and the like, but the fact that it was so inexpensive to get them, that's going to change. You might have to buy from more expensive areas. I'd also pay attention to the long-term trajectory of this crisis. What is going to end up permanent? And what is just temporary? What kind of sanctions are, are going to be long lasting because of the war crimes and, and, and the fact that Putin is just destroying, is destroying so much infrastructure in Ukraine and is going to have to pay for it? And how much is temporary? I would say we may find that uh, energy cutbacks are temporary simply because the West is such a voracious appetite for energy. But we'll see. I would resist I- the temptation to just go back to normal when this is over because it could happen again. I, I was just going to say that I think that a lot of people don't have an appreciation for what the sanctions situation might look like. There are those people that are optimistic in mind and think, okay, what if the war ended tomorrow? But the sanctions will remain, won't they? This is not going to go away very quickly. There's almost 3 million refugees. They're still they're still here in Europe and they need to be housed and fed and what have you. Could you talk to us a little bit about yeah. that? I, I do think that as long as Putin is in power based on the war crimes that he has committed, both at the strategic level in in starting this war in the first place and at the operational level and how he's executed it. I think that as long as Putin is in power, these very severe sanctions are going to stay in place with a few exceptions. It's possible that that will look the other way on energy exports. Europe is going to place a lot of pressure on that as it regards to gas exports and the like. But uh, you're not going to find a lot of companies rushing back into Russia you're not going to find a lot of nations willing to peel back sanctions just because of the the horrific nature of what well, I was just going to say has done. Uh, what going back to your original comment about risk, ESG, and war crimes. I mean, these are real war crimes. So the consumer has never had as much power as they do today, and I think yeah. both consumers and employees will not want to be associated with companies that are, for the sake of profit, for the sake of low cost still wanting to go back to work with Russia. 
Yeah, and for you know publicly traded companies, ISS and Glass Lewis are going to be paying very close attention to who's dealing with Russia and in what way. To say nothing of the media, who will yeah. be only to already is publicizing companies yeah. that are still doing business in Russia. There's a little bit of a complication because some companies are really trapped right now. The, the hotel industry, for example, has contracts in Russia that that don't have force majeure provisions that if they break them, they could be <laughs> as hard as it is to imagine uh, subject to to successful lawsuits coming from Russia. Unless, of course, the U.S. government makes a, a force majeure statement and you know that moots those particular cases. So it's really going to be a case-by-case basis. But I think in general, the a very strong set of sanctions will remain in place as long as Putin is in power. So what advice would you give to supply chain leaders right now that are, you've talked to us about a number of different things. Are there other things that they need to be focused on? I think one of the things I would be thinking about is how much do you depend on China? Our economic ties, the West's economic ties are far deeper, obviously, to China than they are to Russia. So what if China decides to act out and try to take Taiwan by force? Now, I think a couple of things have happened. First of all, I don't see that happening this year. The 20th Party Congress, where Xi Jinping is going to get his third term as chairman, is this November. So he's going to want to take as little risk as possible between now and then. After that, though, he's going to have another five-year term. And and his lasting legacy is, again, a historical Chinese leader. It's going to be whether he can get Taiwan back into the fold. But he's just had a shock. Well, I was saying, depending on how we treat this situation, he might be emboldened. Well, or he might not be. It may be that he's looked at a few things. Nobody thought that the Ukrainian people were going to resist. Nobody thinks that the Taiwanese people are going to resist either. Look what just happened. Mm. Everybody thought that the Russian military was back, that they were now a world-class state-of-the-art military, and they've been deeply embarrassed by their operations in Ukraine. So Xi Jinping has to be wondering, is my military that bad also, even though they're telling me they're very good? Mm. Nobody felt that the, the West was going to react the way it did with sanctions on Russia. And not only, as we said, national sanctions, but ESG self-imposed sort of sanctions from companies. And Xi Jinping has to be looking at that, even though he knows how much our economies are intertwined. And he's also looking at the fact that instead of driving over 50 miles of frozen mud to get to Kiev, he's got to go across 100 miles of water. Uh, So it may have given Xi Jinping a little bit of pause about the idea of taking Taiwan by force. And he may be challenging his own people now Start talking to me about other ways where we can bring Taiwan back into the fold other than just using force. But either way, going back to the supply chain question, it would be remiss of any business leader to not think or consider that scenario. Yeah, and and that doesn't mean leave China. Uh, It's really hard for us to do that. But I do think that you need to do some strategic planning of the big what if question of what if did something happen to China and all of a sudden all of our sources of supply are cut off? Do we have alternatives? Do we have stocks to get through trying to find alternatives? Again, just to me, just-in-time supply is uh, history at the moment just because of the turbulence in the world right now. So I, I just check the assumptions that you're making about your supply chain coming from China to see if those assumptions are wrong, how your business would be affected. And lastly, again, any advice for leaders in the middle of crisis that are have got things going off, lots of balls in the air, lots of things that they didn't sign up for when they became supply chain leaders, like having to extract uh, their employees out of Ukraine or having to, I don't know, deal with suppliers that want only cash payments or what, ha- what have you? 
Yeah, it's interesting. When I talk to manufacturing CEOs, they're, they're telling me that the most important uh, person in the room with them used to be either their sales or marketing or finance people. One I spoke with the other day says, I don't even talk to those guys anymore. I'm with my supply chain guy every single day. So it really is a keen area of focus for a lot of, of leaders who are maybe have a finance background or a marketing background who maybe aren't as steeped in, in um, supply chain as other, others might be. And that's more for the CEO, the C-suite. But the, the supply chain leaders are now getting to know their CEOs much better than they ever did in the past. And it really is a matter of staying calm, of trying to hedge your bets as best you can for the future while you manage the present. That means managing your time, paying the, the most attention to the most important things in this particular crisis, and don't let the mundane draw you off. This particular crisis demands intense focus on the part of our supply chain experts to get through it. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of pain. One of the things that I've always felt is you always try to turn a negative into a positive. And if you're not running to the sound of the guns, then you're probably in the right job or in the wrong job. And you should relish the fact that you are in a leadership position where what you can do is make a difference. And, and that sort of positive approach in the morning is what keeps me going. Sandy, I want to thank you for being here. Thank you for talking to us and giving us such a, an interesting way to look at things and how to lead through crisis. Thank you for joining yeah. us. Yeah. Well, one of the, I'd like to do, if I could, is uh, yes, thanks for please. having De me, Maria. Yeah, because uh, I, I want to hear about the podcast. Yeah, you've got a podcast yeah, coming yeah. up. So I want you to tell us a little bit about your podcast. Yeah, I was very fortunate to be connected to you, Maria, through the mutual producer that does your podcast and mine. And we have, I've just started one called The Adrenaline Zone with a retired female astronaut. And we interview people who take risk. And that's probably a lot of your audience is taking a lot of risk right now. So uh, we've had some remarkable guests. The first woman to referee a Super Bowl. We've had Joseph Newgarden, the first or an IndyCar champion. Our first episode is probably going to be up later this week. Our trailer is up right now. If you want to check it out, it's a lot of fun. And that would be at theadrenalinezone.com. So thanks yeah. a lot for letting me get that in. Theadrenalinezone.com. We're going to check it out and we'll see because it's all about risk right now. So thanks so much for being here, Sandy. My pleasure. Thank you again, Maria. Thanks to uh, all of you hardworking supply chain folks out there. It's a tough world. <laughs> it sure is. And for those of you listening, we'll catch you at the next episode of Transform Talks. Thank you. Thank you.